0: I cannot believe it's almost summertime. Same. Like, literally, it's like, what, three weeks away from, like, officially summer, even though it already feels like summer outside?
1: I know, even though it's already 100,000 degrees outside. Even and though
0: we're definitely going to the pool tomorrow.
1: <laughs> yes. So, whether y'all are listening to this, sitting by the pool, sipping an ice-cold glass of Pinot Grigio, or your favorite Sauvignon Blanc.
0: Or some rosé. Rosé's great by uh, the pool.
1: Yes. Or if you are sitting in your burning ass car with black seats and your friends have always told you, hey, you should get one of those sunshades. And you're like, yeah, I don't need that. And now you're like, I think I'm getting actual burns.
0: On your from ass. sitting
1: here. <laughs> and... Yeah, I didn't get the model with cooled seats because I don't have $50,000 to spend, and you're sitting there burning to death. Do I roll down the windows to let the hot air out, or will that let the hot air in? I don't know. Thank y'all, however you're listening to us. As y'all could probably hear my feelings about summer, I'm not a big fan. Clearly. I don't like the heat. I, I think it should never be above, like, 45 degrees outside.
0: But you know what I am so much looking forward to? A lot of what you were just talking about, like, pool...
1: Burning wine... to death in a car?
0: <laughs> no, 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 before you got to the car park. <laughs> okay, but, yeah. like, the pool with wine, with cookouts, like, hanging mm-hmm. out with friends. I mean, literally, I'm just describing our day tomorrow. I'm really excited, as you can tell. <laughs> Same. <laughs> so... Um
1: I, this week, after work one day, was like... I want to go to the pool. So I wound up going at like seven because I had got nice. work. I had to do stuff, but it was still like light outside because the sun doesn't set till like midnight basically. And it doesn't, it sets at like eight. But. <laughs> And by that, I mean nine. Anyway, but the sun had gone below the apartment buildings, Yeah. So it wasn't, like, on me burning me to death because I'm pale as a ghost.
0: You really are. I can barely see you right now.
1: Oh, my badge at work is (laughs) me in front of a white background, (laughs) and I legitimately blend into it. Granted, it's, like, overexposed and washed out, but I, like, you cannot see where the line of my skin to the white wall. (laughs) So... It's fine. It's whatever. I'm very pale. But it was nice. I brought some ciders. I swam in the water. My friend had a Bloody Mary and was like sitting on one of those chairs that's like half in the water, half not in the water. Love those. It's wonderful.
0: Well, literally, um, tomorrow's going to be my first pool day of the season. So I hope you picked out some good wines. Well, anyway, this is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany.
1: I'm Tyler. And we are ready for the summer. Because we have to be. Because it's here. Because this because is Texas is and we have
0: no choice. Summer is coming. Winter is over, you guys. And it's time for summer.
1: Which as an adult, summer is just not that exciting. As a kid, that's the best. As an adult, you're like, well, now I'm just going to work and it's hot.
0: <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> the worst. Because you're like, I'm wearing my really nice clothes. It's nine ten, and I already have pit stains.
1: <laughs> yeah, like it's nine a.m. and it's ninety degrees outside, and I we don't live in Arizona, no, or I don't know the surface of the sun, but it sure as hell feels like it. Well, uh, and then when it's windy, and you're like, this reminds me of when I'm baking and I open the oven <laughs> to check on it, except I'm outside and this is everywhere.
0: <laughs> but then there's also that little bit of like, uh, oh, oh, the breeze, it feels so good, but it hurts, but it's better than no breeze.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. (laughs) Anyways, like I said, if y'all are enjoying listening to our episodes by the pool, in the car, in your air-conditioned house, (laughs) you should also head to Patreon so you can check out our Murder Mini episodes from the pool car, air-conditioned house, however you're listening to us. But just head over to Patreon.com, check out the Blood & Wine Patreon page, And check out our Murder Mini episodes, all of our different perks for our different levels. And if you want to join our Patreon community and support us, check it out there.
0: Yes. And seriously, some of our favorite topics have come from you guys. And if you're in our top tier, you definitely get to pick that topic. So go check out Patreon. And while you're at it, Be sure to participate in True Crime Tuesday, a.k.a. that's the day our episodes come out, which all that means is just subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or whatever your listening platform is. All of our new episodes are released on Tuesday, so they will be right there for you in your new episodes and your listening.
1: And one thing I wanted to mention, so you know how we'll occasionally talk about some of our recommendations, some of our favorite new podcasts we've found, or some yeah. of our old favorites that we are really into
0: well, one that I'm sure you guys have surmised that we are heavily influenced by and absolutely love is wine and crime. Yes. So what the girls are doing, Amanda, Lucy, and Kenyon, we love your show. They are the OGs of wine and true crime. And if yeah. you have never checked it out, you definitely should.
1: Absolutely. And uh, we'll be playing just a quick preview of theirs for y'all after Brittany's case in this episode. And after our episode, you should definitely go check out wine and crime.
0: Yes. And with that, I'm actually going to go ahead and jump into the topic for this week's episode. So I kind of pulled a fast one on Tyler and changed it uh, literally this afternoon because I yeah. got to thinking about it. And this was one that I felt it was really important for us to address because we've never, we, we've done murders that apply to this, but never called it out specifically. So yeah. this week's topic is unsolved homicides. I did some research and I have some pretty scary numbers to share with oh, everyone. Oh, So, I used the Washington Post, the New York Post, and NPR for these numbers. So, out of the 58,868 homicides in 55 cities over the past 10 years, 50% did not result in an arrest. God. And in 2017 alone, a new FBI report that was released last year in 2018 found that about 40% of the nation's murders weren't solved. So 60% of the murders reported in 2017 were cleared. And what that mm-hmm. means, the FBI considers a murder case cleared when a person is arrested, charged, and turned over to courts, or when the offenders are identified, but for some reason they cannot be arrested because either they've died or they can't be extradited. And just as a comparison, 50 years ago, that clearance rate was 90%.
1: I will say, as shocking As that is and might lead you to think like, oh my god, we are fucking up. Really, what scares me about that is our technology and stuff has increased so much that if the clearance rate is dropping that significantly, that leads me to think there are a lot of people who were convicted of murders that they did not do. And if it was 50 years ago... I mean that means either executed or they've probably died in prison at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Which is fucking horrifying.
0: Yeah, and and that leaves about 40% of the 15,000 murders reported nationwide, so about 6,000 of them in all
1: unsolved. God, 6,000 a year just going unsolved.
0: I know, and In the last decade, law enforcement success rate has been slipping. The high that we've had in the last decade was in 2009, when it was Mm -hmm. 66.6%, which is a really eerie number.
1: And it's also exactly two-thirds.
0: Yes. Meanwhile, at the same time, the country's murder rate has climbed over the same period, from 5 per every 100,000 people being murdered in 2009 to 5.4 in 2017.
1: Damn, that is, that's like 10% almost.
0: Yeah, so it's like success rates are going down, but murders are going up. And criminologists estimate that at least 200,000 murders have gone unsolved since the 1960s, which has left family and friends to just wonder and wait and have no idea what happened to their loved one.
1: Fuck, that is the size of a good sized city. 200,000 people.
0: It's so many people. So that's why I felt it was so important for us to address this and to specifically do an episode where we're talking about these unsolved murders.
1: Yeah, because I mean, as you mentioned, we've done quite a few like individual cases that have been unsolved, but having the numbers that you said be able to put it all in perspective is mind-blowing.
0: It really is. And there are some cases where... I think a lot of the times we do cases that are solved because you get more information for the most part in those types of cases, but there are definitely unsolved murders out there that there's a ton of information for, except for who did it.
1: Like the Black Dahlia or Zodiac, even.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Those are two of, I feel like, the most infamous murders ever, and a lot Mm -hmm. of it is because they're unsolved and so well known, and there's so much detailed information, but... To follow that up, I'm going to go to a much lighter topic and talk about my wine. Yes. Because I promise you I'm going to need this. I'm also really excited about this one. I picked the El Torano 2014 Monstrel. And- Ooh,
1: that bottle's gorgeous. It's
0: so pretty. It has like a lot of blue flowers on it. And it is a Spanish wine. Um, I actually got this one at Whole Foods. I had never gone to Whole Foods before to get a wine, but they have so many different wines that I've never seen before. Um, And it was only $12. So I did not pay Whole Foods price. I still stayed within our price range. This wine, like I said, is from Spain. But First, I want to talk about the grape varietal. So, Monestrel is the native Spanish name for the French Mauvelde grape, but it's also known as the Mataro in Australia and California. Huh. So, this grape is a black-skinned variety, and it's been grown in vineyards all around the western Mediterranean for centuries, which is why it's in Spain and France. It's thought to have been originated in Spain, and it's now basically grown everywhere in the Iberian Peninsula, southern France, California, and South Australia, which is why it has so many different names. And Mm -hmm. like I talked about last week, a lot of the times, a grape varietal will just go by something different in a different country because, obviously, different countries have different languages. But also, one thing you've got to think of is... Yes, it's being grown in different parts of the world. So a Spanish monastrel is going to taste a lot different than an Australian mataro. Now, it may not be too different from a French morverde because they're both, you know, on that same Mediterranean coast. But again, the soils are different in all places. So that's also, you know, I, I don't know if this is a true fact, but in my head, it makes sense as to why that's also why they're called different grapes, even though it is that same vine. So Monestrel likes warm, dry climates, and it has uh, very small, thick-skinned berries on the vines, which is a very good combination for making wine with very intense color and high tannin levels. So this grape is not grown as much as it used to be, and a lot of that is because it was nearly eradicated by the phylloxera epidemic of 1880, Mm -hmm. or in the 1880s, and I mentioned this on a previous episode, and I definitely think I pronounced the PH, so sorry, you guys, for literally... Oh, like
1: Pyloxera? Yep, I'm oh. positive
0: that's what I said. So it is Phyloxera. And um, this Spanish monastrell wine, ones like this tend to be very rich, dark, and frequently showing flavors of blackberry and black cherry. So mm-hmm. I'm really excited about this one. It's going to be like very tannic. It's going to be very fruity. Um, I honestly couldn't find a lot of information about this wine specifically, but I did find a few people's reviews. So a few tasting notes that um, some other people tasted, black fruit, black pepper, cowhide and suede notes. So it's going to have those leathery,
1: like licking a shoe, (laughs)
0: like licking a shoe, like kissing a cow. Um, it's very smooth with a strong fruity aroma, and then it has a vibrant taste with a tinge of cloves and a musky undertone. And it pairs very well with manchego, which is a Spanish sheep's milk cheese. So mm. I am so excited to try this wine.
1: Yes. And while you open yours, I'm going to talk about mine. But first I want to say, so you know how I'm scared of most animals bigger than me? Just not a fan of them. I
0: mean, that's totally are fair. Cows I'm not. Cow could...
1: Cows I'm not scared of. But they Bulls? could, like, yes, sit on but... you
0: and you'd be a goner.
1: True. Just but... stop
0: stealing cows' chairs and you're not going to put yourself at that risk.
1: But it's fun. Um, no, but I like cows. They're fun and friendly and, I don't know. They just, they make me think that their names would be Peggy. And they're just kind.
0: Peggy, Sue, definitely Bessie. Yeah. Bessie's the
1: mama mama cow. She is. She's kind. Anyways, my wine. Mmm,
0: this smells really good. Okay, sorry, sorry. Tell me about your wine.
1: Yes. So mine is the 2017 Tharsis City Tinto. And just look at this artwork that is on this bottle.
0: Oh my god. Ooh, you have to keep that one.
1: Oh, I know. And it says on it, this drawing was created by Joan Canovas, better known as the sketcher at the doorstep of La Lonja de Valencia. And she's a street artist. And this is her perception of the city of Valencia. I and love that. So this one is from Eastern Spain. The vineyard is about 40 miles west of Valencia.
0: Mm-hmm. I love how we both picked uh, Spanish wines for today. We did.
1: Yeah, Um, and the Tinto grape is one that I've never heard of. It's also known as the Alicante Boucher grape variety, and it's one that's been widely cultivated since 1866, and it's actually a cross between the Petit Boucher and a Grenache grape. This wine is hand-harvested in October and fermented at 23 degrees Celsius, before aging for five months in French and American oak barrels. So this wine retains the freshness of a young wine, but it has that certain complexity given by the oak barrel.
0: Right. Well, and also it's a super old grape varietal, like you were just saying. And mm-hmm. I mean, and that is, again, like mine is as well. I think it, I think it's not only interesting we both pick Spanish wines, but also ones that are derived from like very old varietals yeah and i've never so, heard of your great varietal either what was it again a, a tin what
1: tinto tinto so the appearance of the wine is a deep cherry red with a bright middle layer and fine drops on the nose it has a very intense clean nose with hints of ripe cherries and red berries with a slight touch of toffee and vanilla Ooh! and then on the mouth probably it's from initially- the oak
0: barrels the toffee and vanilla, yeah, definitely from the oak barrel. I would
1: imagine. And then on the mouth, it initially is balanced and fruity with a, just a really great structure mm-hmm. and gentle, well-blended tannins.
0: Ooh, so yours isn't going to be as tannic as mine, but yeah. that sounds so good. And I'm still obsessed with the artwork on that bottle.
1: Same. This That's why I saw this one in the store and was like, I'm getting this and I'm drinking it today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like this is the wine for tonight because this is happening.
1: Yeah. And also in this episode we both picked ones that aren't screw top.
0: That is true. We both had to open Oh. There you go. Again, when you do that it sounds like you're about to take off the top of the bottle. I know. <laughs> oh my god.
1: So, I'm going to go ahead and pour my glass.
0: Yes. Oh, it's dark. Well, mm-hmm. it actually looks really dark. I was expecting a little bit of a lighter one. Mine's pretty dark, too. In the
1: light around the edges, it has that very bright red. That's what mine has,
0: too. That's a great way to put it. I'm holding it up against my lamp, trying not to spill it on my computer.
1: Oh, it smells so good. The intense nose. I definitely get that.
0: I can smell the leather on mine. So let's cheers so we can try our wines. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. Oh,
1: my God, that's good.
0: Mine is, oh, my God. Mine is really good. And I absolutely taste the pepper. I think yeah. those very high. Let me talk about mine. I think the very high tannins in this one definitely lend to that peppery flavor.
1: Mm-hmm. The
0: smell is very leathery with like some blackberry mixed in with it. Mm. It's really good. It's very unlike anything I've tasted because it, it has this balance of fruit and pepper That I'm not used Mm. to. Because normally when I have this peppery flavor, I'm used to it being coupled with more of the leather and Mm -hmm. the dirt flavor. And this one is still fruity, but not too fruity. It's a heavier wine. I definitely recommend this. And I can totally see why this would be the perfect wine to have with a cheese plate. Like different, like a charcuterie board.
1: Yum. God, mine. I mean, yeah, that first flavor that hits you is that bright red berry that the cherries almost like a deep raspberry kind of berry flavor uh but not not sweet and not overpoweringly fruity like a merlot right very like that's the flavor but if you think like biting into a fresh cherry that like little bit of sharp sour note kind of thing really good very gentle it's a heavy wine But the tannins are really well balanced and it's smooth. I'm so into this.
0: So I don't I think we've talked about the legs that wine has on our Mm -hmm. podcast before. So did you know I just learned this today from Wine Folly, but if the legs are slower, it means there's more alcohol, like the alcohol content is higher. Um, oh, these
1: legs are slow as shit. Mine are these too. These legs are like me running a 10K.
0: <laughs> slow. But
1: slow and not gonna make it. Slow
0: and not running, walking. Um, That'd be me. And it has been a while since we've mentioned the legs. So if you aren't familiar with that term, when you talk about wine's legs, it's when... Talk about them
1: gams.
0: (laughs) It's when you swirl it around in your glass and you see how it drips back into it. Like, once the wine has settled, there's wine around the glass and it will slowly trickle in and there will be different streams of wine. This sounds... This is my very, like technical streams of wine. Mm -hmm. Uh, But those are called the legs, and this one has some good legs.
1: All right. That's a little creepy, but okay. Well, You
0: know, one thing I read today, (laughs) when you say, have a nice day, it sounds very polite. But when you say, enjoy your next 24 hours, it's very threatening. I mean... (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: Well, now that we have our wine... We have our dark fucking topic.
0: And dark wines.
1: Yes. Tell me about your unsolved homicide. Yes. I also hate that going into these, I know, that, I mean, these cases are never happy endings, but there's always at least a conclusion.
0: There's a bittersweet moment at the end when there's at least some type of resolution. Yeah, absolutely. But
1: we know going into these- There won't be that. We're not going to get that. We
0: know going into these it's going to be frustration and screaming
1: my other autobiography frustration <laughs> and screaming the tyler kelly story
0: frustration and screaming the follow up novel uh from 6 sec- 6
1: degrees from sc- or 6 degrees from screaming
0: yeah oh my god so every single one is something screaming
1: and then the last one is how i lost my voice
0: <laughs> <laughs> and it's like a really dark one though cuz you wrote it when you're like 95 and you're like on yes. your deathbed and you lost your voice because you're dying it's super dark oh, god
1: i was thinking like it would be dark in a non literal way like i lost my voice like From screaming. i'm not able to like speak for myself i'm not oh. able to like get my perspective out there like i was thinking it that, that kind of dark thing not literally i'm dying and my throat is like i don't know gone
0: no 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 um you went i i will argue darker i was saying like <laughs> You can't scream anymore because you're dead, not because you're... Like, you know, like, you, you don't talk anymore because you're dead. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I forgot the name Anyways. of mine. We came up with a fantastic one, and I don't remember it, so... Me neither. I'm screwed. But the case I picked is the Redhead Murders. So the sources I used were All That's Interesting, the Gadsden Times April 25th, 1985 newspaper, UPI, the Times-Tribune, and Learning History. So... Okay. I am just going to start out with this is a really tragic case. Joy. So, take some, I'm going to take a sip before I dive in. So, the Redhead Murders is the name given to the six to 11 unsolved murders of redheaded women along major highways in the United States in the 1980s.
1: Oh, fuck.
0: These victims oftentimes were sex workers or hitchhikers, and many of them were never identified due to the inability to find a family to verify their identities. They lived transient lives and a lot of the times had, you know, stepped away from their families. And so they were already gone to their families, so there was no concern. They didn't didn't even know to know something had happened.
1: Which is, to me, so heartbreaking. Because I feel like people that... I don't want to say don't have anyone looking for them, but don't have anyone to know to look for them because they've been missing, are so often targeted themselves. Absolutely. It reminds me of like John Wayne Gacy and how a lot of the young men he targeted
0: were themselves
1: runaways or outcasts or people that Mm -hmm. were already missing. And so... They're not being looked for as you know a possible murder suspect. it's a runaway child or something.
0: Right. It's more like missing, but like not missing, missing, but like missing because they ran yeah. away and they haven't been located and
1: yeah and when especially when you're an adult, you are fully free to cut ties with your family and friends and leave like it's, absolutely. that's not a criminal thing, so it's not like no, you know if if you disappear because you clearly left. Then, you know, it can be hard for police officers to be able to put in the resources because they're not looking at it as, you know, possible homicide or something with possible violent, um, a violent outcome. I I mean, in some cases, it's not even considered a missing person.
0: Of course. Yeah. And that's it's tragic. It's so tragic. But at the same time, we do have that freedom as adults to do whatever we want, go wherever we want. And we don't have to tell anyone about it either. Yeah. The first victim is known as the Whitesell County Redhead. It was attributed to this unknown killer at a later date. She was an unidentified white woman whose body was found naked alongside Route 250 near Littleton in Whitesell County, West Virginia, on February 13th, 1983. A couple, an older couple, was walking and reported that they saw something that they thought was a mannequin before they realized it was a human corpse it appeared that the body had been placed there recently because there was snow on the ground but there wasn't any snow on the body and then there were uh-huh. also tire tracks and footprints to indicate that she died at a different area and then was just placed in this location where she was found yeah. and it was presumed that she had been dead for about two days her cause of death is not entirely known but it's likely that she was suffocated in many of these redhead murders that you'll come to later see, her hair was not truly red, but it was more of a dark auburn color. And mm-hmm. she was a little bit older than a lot of the future victims. She was between 35 and 45. There was one person of interest that emerged from the case after residents reported seeing a white man about five-six near the site where the body was found. However, he was never identified. About a year later, on September sixteenth, nineteen eighty four, another woman who was identified as twenty-eight-year-old Lisa Nichols was found strangled to death along Interstate forty near West Memphis, Arkansas. And this Wow,
1: so West Virginia to Arkansas, that's a a pretty big jump.
0: Yes, it, it absolutely is. And Lisa was a resident of West Virginia. And authorities were not able to come into contact with family members for some time. And it just indicated that she was estranged from them. And this resulted in her remaining unidentified for nearly a year. Oh, God. So she was eventually identified in June 1985. And she had strawberry blonde hair. So again, not true like red-red. She had strawberry blonde and she was picked up most likely when she was hitchhiking before she was murdered. Her body was found wearing only a sweater. And this follows the future pattern you will see of victims being found mostly nude. On January 1st, 1985, a body was found at the roadside near Jellico, Tennessee, in Campbell County on Interstate 75. And she was known as the Campbell County Jane Doe. Although her murder did occur about three days before she was found, presumably on, like, December 30th, she was already in a really advanced state of decomposition, and she had short red hair and was presumed to be about between 17 and 30. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it didn't say why her decomp had seemed to be quick, because it was cold.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's December, January in Tennessee. I would imagine... If anything, decomp would be slowed down significantly.
0: Yeah, I would think so as well. In April 1985, a second body was found in Campbell. She was also heavily decomposed, so much so that they couldn't even tell what her hair color was.
1: Oh, really?
0: Yes. Which I don't understand because I feel like your hair lasts quite a while. Yeah. But... Uh... But this signifies a reason that maybe it's an unrelated crime. Also, this body, this woman appeared to be a lot younger. And she seemed to have been murdered about one to four years sooner. So she was looking like she was between the ages of nine and 15, which is a lot younger than the redhead victims. Her cause of death is unknown, as her remains were partial, I think there were only about thirty-two bones found, one being her skull. But it's still uh, maybe a homicide.
1: I guess if someone has been decomposing to a point where like their skin is sloughing off,
0: maybe their and, like, hair does you, too. You
1: just, I mean, well, yeah, I mean, their hair like would the go scalp. where their scalp goes. Yeah, you know, obviously, if there's only thirty-two bones found, she was moved. So it might be that when she was moved, her skull was picked up, but not the remains of her scalp and hair.
0: That's a good point. That could be part of what's going on. But I, I didn't even think about the fact like skin slippage and all of that. But yeah. So later that year, in March 1985, police received what they believe would be their first major break in the case. Okay. On March 6th, a redheaded woman named Linda Shackle reported to police that 37-year-old trucker. Jerry Leon Johns had attempted to strangle her to death with her own torn shirt before oh God. he took her body and threw it outside of his cab. And he of course thought she was dead. So um, she miraculously survived. She was thrown out on the side of interstate 40 in Knox County, Tennessee. And as soon as she was able to come to, she immediately contacted police and they quickly arrested Johns. Though his attempted murder did fit the M.O. of the previous redheaded murders, police dismissed him as a suspect for all these other killings because he had airtight alibis for the dates that the killings occurred. So, unfortunately, this was not their big break, and the killings continued. The next victim is known as the Chatham County Redhead, and on March 31st, was when her skeletonized body was found alongside Interstate 24 in Tennessee. She was believed to have died about three to five months before due to an unknown cause. They could not determine her cause of death. Next was the Knox County redhead victim. She was found alongside Route 25 in Kentucky inside a white refrigerator.
1: Oh, fuck.
0: She had long red hair and like many of the other victims, she had been suffocated to death. She was an unknown female estimated to be between the ages of 25 and 35, and she was nude except for two different necklaces that she was wearing. One was a heart pendant and the other an eagle pendant. Witnesses later reported seeing the unknown female the day prior at a truck stop in Corbin. She was allegedly attempting to get a ride to North Carolina, but she never made it. On April 14th, 1985, a young white female's body was located in Greenville, Green County, Tennessee. So she's known as the Greenville redhead victim. She died Mm -hmm. by severe blunt force trauma, which is a different... Cause of death than all of these other women we've talked about who had been um,
1: strangled or suffocated. Yeah.
0: Yes. Or that we couldn't tell, which she was stabbed three to six times. And when she was found, she was in an advanced state of decomposition. However, they were able to obtain her fingerprints as well as DNA and dental information. She had light brown to blonde hair with red highlights. Authorities hoped that they would be able to identify her body through these fingerprints, but they were unsuccessful and she remains unidentified. With all of this happening in all these different locations, finally, on April 24th, 1985, 21 officials from Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, and Arkansas met with FBI representatives at a six-hour summit in Tennessee to determine if all of the murders that were happening were related. And that, you know, they're wanting to know, do we have a serial killer that's out on the loose? After this six-hour summit, their result was inconclusive. Steve Watson, who was the deputy director of the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, said that while these cases definitely had some similarities they also had a lot of dissimilarities. And one of, yeah. one of the things that he noted is that only three of the victims truly had red hair. Others had strawberry blonde or auburn or just something that wasn't necessarily a redhead. And yeah. some of the bodies were found clothed. Some were found nude. Some had sexual intercourse before. Some did not. There was one thing, though, that they did all have in common. And it was that they were most likely found very far from where they were picked up and that the killer or killers clearly preyed on hitchhikers and sex workers or people that they deemed had no family ties to report them missing, which is why a lot of these victims remain unidentified.
1: Which, I mean, it sounds like a truck driver serial killer, you know, like the guy that they thought it was gonna be the big break, but he wound up having an alibi for the dates. I mean, to me that would be absolutely what I would be assuming, especially since they're along interstates, along highways.
0: Yeah. I, mean, I absolutely agree. And that because of all of the different places they were found and the similarities in the cases, it does lend itself to being a truck driver. With little evidence and no family members demanding justice. These cases went cold and were soon forgotten.
1: Which I think is really powerful. A lot of people don't necessarily discount family members seeking justice, but I think don't always give them the credit that, you know, having that pressure on local politicians or um, police offices or administrations, like, that can do a lot
0: it really can. And, I mean, you remember when we talked to Jackie, sometimes family members can actually
1: help. Yeah. Like,
0: they're not a hindrance. They're help. So now this brings us to the present day. In 2017, more than 30 years after the bodies of multiple young red-haired women were discovered dumped alongside all of these U.S. highways, police say the killings may be the work of an unknown serial killer.
1: Sounds like it.
0: So... There's still too little evidence to officially connect all the cases, but there are lots of parallels between them. Six of the women were found mostly nude, beside major roadways, between 1984 and 1985. They all had red hair, and most had been strangled. So basically, in 2017, the reasons that were used for why the cases were not similar enough were the same ones used to defend that they were actually similar. If you notice that I literally just basically listed the same stuff. So yeah. and I and I agree with this because if you think about it, red hair, strawberry blonde, auburn, those are all shades of red. And yeah. if someone is specifically targeting someone with red hair, a strawberry blonde standing next to a blonde, one of them has red hair. Yeah. It is not like it was blonde, brunette, and three redheads, they all had some shade of red hair. So yeah, um, I very much disagreed when I read earlier about that being a reason why that summit was like, nope, sorry.
1: Yeah, it seemed very weak. But I can also see if that's like one of the big things tying them together, wanting to be as specific as possible. But I think it's foolish to believe that if someone's targeting redheads, they're going to go specifically for, like, ginger red hair. Right. And, you know, be like, oh, she's strawberry blonde. Or, "Ah, oh, she's, you know, that's more auburn brown. That's that's not red. Like, red hair.
0: Yeah. Also, these women were found hundreds of miles apart. So the investigations were handled by different agencies. And, of course, that created issues Back yeah. back in the 80s. You know, we've talked about this before, how when... And and a lot of this is why truck driver killers, if that's what this is, are successful. is because they're dealing with a lot of different jurisdictions. And it takes yeah. a long time for those jurisdictions to come together. And a lot of the times, it doesn't happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, to get the jurisdiction in West Virginia to not only just make the connection with another murder they may have heard about in the first place... But to also make such a strong enough connection that they reach out to this other jurisdiction and say, hey, ours is very similar. I mean, because it's not like they have this social media page or whatever where they plug in, like, red hair, female, side of the highway. Oh, my gosh. All these other ones pop up. Maybe this is related. And by social media, I definitely meant, like, search engine. Yeah. but (laughs) um, So, you know a lot of the connections are manual and it has to be hearing of other cases from these departments or these other departments reaching out to you being like, hey, is our case similar? And even just on the ground level, the different things that, you know, maybe in one of the Tennessee jurisdictions, they're focusing more on, you know, they have this victim who does have red hair, but was in a refrigerator, Right. So they're like, There's a okay, difference. so we're looking for, you know, maybe other people in refrigerators, other people stored in places, and the red hair is not a thing. They're not going to be like, oh, our victim was a redhead, who was this and this and such. Yep. So, I mean, just all of the different moving pieces. Mm-hmm. I get it's, it. Yeah.
0: Well, and also, another big part, and the reason these cases went cold is that only one of the six women was identified. The rest were all still Jane Doe. However, in the summer of 2017, police stumbled across a new piece of evidence, which revived their hunt for a suspect in the decades-long case. The FBI had re-examined evidence from a 1985 homicide in which a Jane Doe with red hair was found inside a refrigerator, so the one we were just talking about in Kentucky, Mm -hmm. They found a match for a fingerprint inside the refrigerator. However, the print turned out to be unrelated to the case, but it spurred Detective Aaron Frederick of Kentucky State Police to re-examine all of the old files. He eventually decided to put out a press release and try to get this woman identified. This release went out in July 2017, and the following October, a woman from North Carolina called saying she thought the woman could be her mother, Epsi Raina Black Pilgrim. They met up with her, they got DNA, and they submitted it off. And while they were waiting for results, more was happening in the Redhead murder case. Now, as you know, like, getting DNA results is not something that happens instantaneously. And of course, they had to, like, make this whole connection, blah, blah, blah.
1: Well, yeah, it's, you don't you know, drip a little blood, and it's like, beep,
0: beep, 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 match. Exactly. It's not like it happens on CSI. This is where my case gets really cool, and where, like, all of y'all armchair detectives are gonna love this, because I love this. So in the spring of 2018, a high school sociology class in Elizabethton, Tennessee, began researching the redhead murders for a class project.
1: Oh, wow. I love that.
0: It gets better. Just, oh my god. So the students and their teacher, Alex Campbell, gathered information from multiple police agencies, and they also solicited advice from an FBI profiler. By the end of the semester, Campbell was convinced that the killings were the work of a serial killer. So he said that he and his class determined that there were six murders linked together. One of his defense, and while this is not like, forensic or whatever, but it's a great point is that it's ridiculous to assume that six different killers in the same area at the same time killing in the same way for the same reason. Like you cannot assume there are six different killers.
1: I will say, side note, can we just give a quick cheers for all of the awesome teachers out there? How many of his students do you think are going to go on to become forensic scientists or just have this passion for solving crimes and science like I'm gonna I'm gonna give a cheers for him uh,
0: definitely cheers serious cheers for all the teachers out there yes and also doing an assignment like this that makes an impact mm-hmm. because it goes even further so the profile that the students put together alleges that the killer was probably a truck driver based in Knoxville Tennessee so like mm-hmm. we were saying earlier probably a truck driver because of everywhere that he was and the and yeah. the the routes that he took. They allege that he lured hitchhikers or sex workers into his truck, killed them with his bare hands before dumping their bodies beside the road.
1: That's one scary thing about, like, truck driver serial killers or murders, is that I feel like a sedan on the side of the road on the highway, you might also pull over and see if you can help or something. A semi pulled over on the side of the highway? Nah. One, it's They're giant, too. Maybe they're sleeping. Maybe. I don't don't know what's going on. But, like, I'm not going to pull over. Maybe that just makes me an asshole. But I'm not going to pull over to help a semi on the side of the road. But I might pull over to help a car or a truck.
0: No, that absolutely makes sense. And that's a great point. Because you see a semi on the road, you assume they're taking a break. They drive long hours. They're sleeping. Yeah. You don't assume something's wrong. Mostly ever. Unless there's, like, smoke coming out of the engine.
1: Like, so it could literally be, like, daytime or, I mean, they're interstates, so even if it's middle of the night, there's a lot of traffic going by, but that's not suspicious and that's not something that anyone driving by is going to remember. Right. Seeing a semi there.
0: Well, and when you look at a semi, you know, they've got, like, the, the cab area and there's, like, mm-hmm. behind the driver's seat, like, generally, like, a bed, like, an, an area where they actually do sleep. And so there's actually a space for them to not be in the windows to be doing things like this. So the students ended up sending their eight page profile to each agency that was investigating the killings. And this included Detective Frederick, who at this time was still waiting for the DNA results for his victim. He immediately recognized that the children's analysis could be right. So a few months after the students released their findings investigators with the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation came across a blog post about a red-haired woman missing from Indiana. Reading the description, this woman matched one of the Jane Doe's that was found 30 years prior on Interstate 75 in Tennessee. Fingerprints confirmed the woman was 21-year-old Tina Farmer. So we now have another identified victim. And just a month later in the fall of 2018... The DNA results came back from Jane Doe, who was found in the refrigerator, and she was a match for Epsy Pilgrim. Knowing the identity enabled the Kentucky police to reopen the decades-old investigation, and this is the one that Detective Frederick was working on, he now knows that Pilgrim was last seen in the middle of the night at a truck stop in Kentucky, seeking a ride to North Carolina— And a witness remembers someone calling across the CB radio offering her a ride. So someone heard the voice of the killer.
1: Of the killer. Oh my God.
0: And Detective Frederick has also said that the students are likely correct that the killer was a truck driver who went everywhere. Yeah. So what's really cool is in the article I found, I was actually able to read the student's paper and literally, these kids are a bunch of future FBI profilers. It was phenomenal. The way it was structured is they would describe like each characteristic and then give their rationale that backed up why they determined that. And it was Mm -hmm. all things like sex, height, weight, age, job, residence, his relationship status, medical history, home life, his IQ. So it's literally like it would say like male, and then have, like, a paragraph as to why they think it was a male. It would say, height, why... And it was so well thought out that, like, it, it was phenomenal. I'm absolutely going to send you this link, because I know you will oh really God. enjoy yes.
1: it. But... Oh, my God. I hope all those students got instant internships for the FBI if they want them.
0: Literally, though. Like, I just... Reading through this... Now, granted, it's not like I've read an actual FBI profile report, but I've read Mindhunter. And so... The way these students wrote it is very much in that same fashion, but they determined that the killer was a white man born between 1936 and 1962, that he was between 5'9 and 6'2, weighed between 180 and 270, and that he was a commercial truck driver frequently commuting near the Knoxville, Tennessee area on Interstate 40. So, while it's still unsure that all or any of these killings are related, this series of horrifying murders of young women absolutely shocked the nation who was just coming to grips with the existence of modern serial killers in the 80s. I mean, after the 70s happened, it was like, we've talked about like this shock, And, and the 80s that is still reverberating everywhere. And
1: and
0: today the case is obviously still very open and police are currently following leads. And now this killer is known as the Bible Belt Strangler. This was the moniker that the students of Campbell's class gave him. And the reason for this is because the murders that are believed to be related have occurred in Tennessee, Arkansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. So a big portion of the Bible Belt.
1: And Pennsylvania.
0: I know, which is like this outlier. Also, West Virginia, I guess that's part of the Bible Belt. It's kind of the well, the east side, I mean, I maybe? I feel
1: like because a good chunk of the Bible Belt is also the Appalachian region, you know, that similar culture can go up into West Virginia, Pennsylvania. I don't it know. It makes sense. Maybe I'm just shooting shit. No. Shooting shit. Is that a phrase? I don't know. It is.
0: So that is the case of the redhead murders. Okay. And it's horrifying. And I will say the one, like, very good part about this is that they're actively working on it. And that in the last few years,
1: this- So much has been-
0: Yeah, this this case and these cases have come back to the forefront. Because of just things happening and also this class doing it as a project. Like, literally.
1: Well, and just the fact that a high school class was able to contribute so much- Incredible.
0: Well, and the fact that the paper that they wrote actually caught Detective Frederick's attention and that he was like, oh, shit, this is not just a class that is putting together a fun, like, project. This is a class that did their research, talked to actual agents and FBI. They've put together a solid profile that I need to take seriously.
1: Yeah, this is not a class of kids. This is a class of 16-year-old future forensic scientists.
0: Yep. So, for all of y'all out there who are super into true crime and, like, y'all on those, like, Reddit threads and, like, all this information that y'all dig up, that's actually contributing to things nowadays. Well, and web sleuths can definitely help. And, you know, as long as your intentions are good and your intentions are justice, then, I mean, hey, be a part of those conversations because you never know if... This thought that you have is what's going to lead to a piece of evidence being found and a case being solved. Like, it's just Mm -hmm. let's use our brains together. That's literally what we should do. So,
1: absolutely. Anyway,
0: that was my really, really crazy case.
1: Well, before we jump into mine, here is our quick preview for Wine and Crime podcast.
0: Yes. hey true crime fans have you listened to wine and crime yet we're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by three childhood friends who chug wine chat true crime and unleash our worst minnesotan accents Each week, us gals pick a true crime topic and pair it with a delicious wine before delving into the background and psychology behind the crime. Then we share and speculate wildly about a couple of bonkers cases related to the topic. Past episodes include necrophilia, cults, crimes of passion, cruise ship disappearances, exorcisms gone wrong, all this over a bottle of wine or, let's be real, three. Listen anywhere you get your podcasts, you can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Wine and Crime Pod, and check out our website and blog at wineandcrimepodcast.com. Cheers!
1: So the case I picked for today's episode is the case of the Dardeen family murders. And the sources that I used were Wikipedia, the lineup, and the Northwest Herald. So on November 18th of 1987, Keith Dardine, who he'd been a pretty reliable worker at the treatment plant he worked at, he didn't show up for his shift.
0: That's never a good sign.
1: And he hadn't called to inform his boss that he'd be unable to come in and when his boss called the house... The calls just went unanswered all day. So his supervisor called both of his parents, who were divorced, but they both lived near the area. And neither of them knew what had happened to their son. Don Dardine, who is Keith's father, called the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office and agreed to drive down to Ina, Illinois with the house key to meet deputies at the home of his son and daughter-in-law. Once inside... They found the bodies of 30-year-old Elaine Dardine, who is Keith's wife, their son, 3-year-old Peter, and a newborn girl, all tucked into the same bed. Elaine had been bound and gagged with duct tape, and both she and Peter had been beaten to death, apparently with a baseball bat that was found at the scene that had been a birthday gift to Peter from keith earlier that year what
0: is with you and like the family slaughters
1: i don't know i mean i
0: only did one and i almost like specifically avoid family slaughters
1: i don't know i found this one and was like this is my case
0: oh i get it when it feels right it feels like it should be the one
1: yeah so elaine who was seven months pregnant at the time oh my god she had a newborn
0: and was pregnant
1: she'd been beaten so severely that she'd gone into labor and delivered a girl who soon met with the same fate as her brother and mother and was beaten to death with the baseball bat. Oh
0: my god, that was the newborn? Like, actually, a newborn? Oh my god!
1: Yeah, like, still umbilical cord attached, newborn baby. Oh my god. The area had even been cleaned up, which indicated that whoever did this had been in no hurry to vacate the crime scene.
0: That's always, like, and really Keith- creepy when they stick around.
1: And Keith and his car were nowhere to be found.
0: Oh, Keith wasn't in the bed, too.
1: He wasn't there. It was just the three of them. So Keith, who is a native of Mount Carmel, had bought the trailer they lived in in 1986 after completing his job training. And Elaine, who is from Albion, which was a town a little bit closer to I know where they lived, Moved in to the trailer with her two year old son at the time, Peter. They rented the land that it sat on from a nearby farmer couple. And while Keith worked at the treatment plant, Elaine found a job at an office supply store in Mount Vernon. Okay. In 1987, Elaine became pregnant with their second child. And they decided to name their child either Ian or Casey, depending on whether it was a boy or a girl. And You know, this pending addition to their family led them to strongly consider moving. And by late in the year, they'd put their mobile home up for sale.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. They were like, we're growing.
0: We need more space. We needed
1: more space. But that wasn't the only reason for their move. According to Joanne Dardine, who's Keith's mother, he'd said that he would move back to Mount Carmel even if he wasn't able to find a job there before doing so, and he regretted ever moving to Ina, and he told his mom that the area was becoming too violent. There had been fifteen homicides in Jefferson County during the previous two years. And remember, this is a very rural area, so that's a that's ton. a lot. And these, this string of homicides started when Thomas Odell, who was a Mount Vernon teenager killed his parents and three siblings as they individually returned to their home one night in 1985. And it just continued from there. You know, he was caught, but just different people were murdering people in this area, and it just didn't feel safe to them. Yeah, Though Odell, as well as some of those that were charged in murders in the other cases, had been convicted, a lot of residents in this area had become fearful and stressed. A friend of Keith said that after a 10-year-old girl had been raped and murdered in the area in May of 87, Keith became so protective of the family that one night when a young woman came by the home asking if she could make a phone call, he refused to let her in.
0: Oh my god. I mean, like, that makes sense, though. If this is happening, it's hard to be that person that's like, yes, I'll let you come use my phone oh absolutely like come into my home it's like no like i'm sorry you're gonna have to figure out another option which it really sucks because say that person was someone that truly needed help like what if she was being chased or something like it's just it's so hard but when you're in a a situation where it's like protect your family or help the stranger Mm -hmm. like that's a really really difficult decision
1: so though the majority of these murders were unrelated it was enough to drive locals into an intense state of fear. During the days and weeks following the discovery of the Dardine family murders, mm-hmm. locals took to openly carrying shotguns, and the coroner in nearby Franklin County was quoted as saying that locals were so afraid to let strangers into their homes that if he ran out of gas on a country road, he wouldn't even bother knocking on the door and he would instead just walk the highway and hitch a ride.
0: Oh my God. But hitching a ride also not safe, so.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's the late 80s, so it was more common. But I mean, but that's what he's saying. Like it's Like you would get dangerous. shot if you
0: knocked on someone's door. Yeah.
1: Just in this area, after high school basketball games, students would wait in the school building for their parents to come in and accompany them to the parking lot for a ride home instead of like... Socializing outside, hanging out on the field in the parking lot chatting, because things are scary and yeah. everyone feels it.
0: Wow, jeez.
1: So immediately after discovering the bodies of Elaine, Peter, and the baby, investigators had Keith at the top of their list as the prime suspect. Obviously. And assumed that he'd killed his wife and children and was at large. That's
0: exactly what it looks like.
1: A team of armed police went to his mother's house in Mount Vernon to look for him, but the initial suspicions that Keith had brutally murdered his own family were quickly laid to rest when his body was found by a group of hunters the next day. Hunters? Lying in a nearby field.
0: Oh yeah. my god, he was in the field. Which, I mean, I will say, mm-hmm. I get why he was the first suspect. You always look at the oh, spouse 100%. or boyfriend or whatever, well, girlfriend.
1: He's gone, his car is gone, and his family's dead. Yeah, you're gonna think Of course. Him. So he had been shot three times, and his penis was cut off. Holy He'd been mutilated. Oh
0: my god, why? Yeah. I mean, I know you don't have the answer, but I'm just like, why, why do that?
1: Yeah, Police found Keith's car parked outside the police station in the nearby town of Benton, which is about 11 miles from the Dardine home, and blood in the interior of the car indicated that that was where Keith was murdered. Oh, jeez. Early reports from police about these crimes were very limited, and sometimes they contradicted each other, which allowed rumors to spread in this already terrified area. Yeah. The two counties' respective coroners differed on whether Keith had died of a head injury or if he'd been shot. And among those that reported the former that he had a head injury, it was said that it had been inflicted when he was being dragged from his car.
0: Oh, shit. Like, maybe when they, like, drug him out and just, like, pulled and, like, hit his head on the ground or something?
1: Yeah. Oh, God. All of these rumors also permeated the circumstances in which Elaine gave birth, yeah. which first could have been posthumously after she was beaten to death.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, unfortunately, that that does happen. Like, if, if yeah. the mom passes away, sometimes the body automatically gives birth.
1: And this gave rise to stories that Casey, which is what the family was calling the baby since it was their daughter... Yeah had been ripped from her mother's womb. Oh my god. Like cut open and pulled and then beaten to but death. But she
0: wasn't, right? I mean no. she was unfortunately, yes.
1: She was the was latter part,
0: but not the cut out.
1: No. Along with the mutilation of Keith's genitals, this all supported speculation that satanists were active in the area and had performed a ritual sacrifice of the family.
0: Oh my god. Why do Satanists need this, his penis or his family? Well,
1: I mean, they don't. This this is, again, all rumors running around oh. because the the town, that area is not getting a ton of information from the police. So people are saying things and it just keeps building and building. And, you know, they said that this crime was even poised to be the work of a regional serial killer along with three other local unsolved murders.
0: Oh my so god. We both picked serial killers? No one
1: knows. Well, basically, no one knows what the fuck is going yeah. on. Yeah. Some people are saying it's serial killers. Some people are saying it's Satanists. Some people were still saying it was Keith. Like, l- literally no one knows oh god. what the fuck happened. Well, it definitely
0: wasn't Keith. It's not like he killed his family, went out to a field, cut off his dick, and shot himself.
1: Exactly.
0: Oh my god.
1: So, no one who knew the couple had anything bad to say about them. A small quantity of marijuana was found in the trailer, but not even enough to suggest they were involved in dealing or, you know, this could have been a drug related crime. And police also thought that the weed might have even just been inadvertently left behind by the killer. Possibly. Or killers. Yeah. And autopsies found no drugs or alcohol in any of the victims. The coroners also put the time of death for all of the Dardines within an hour of each other. Mm. And the bodies in the trailer had been killed about 12 hours before they were found. And Keith had been dead for 24 to 36 hours before he was found. So basically all four of them died around the same time, even though Keith was...
0: Found elsewhere.
1: Found elsewhere, yeah. But, you know, finding this time of death... it. Made it harder to determine how exactly this crime had been committed since Keith's body was found so far away from the trailer. Right. And that he might have been killed at that location rather than with his family. So they might have parked the car, shot him, cut off his dick, and like pushed him out. Jesus. Kind of and again, at the trailer, the person or people who did this had apparently again taken time not only to tuck elaine's body into the bed along with her children's bodies but also to clean up the scene which again meant they
0: they're in no hurry not have
1: any urgency to leave so determining the motive in this case was very difficult yes the back door had been left open and there was no sign of a forced entry a VCR and a portable camera were in plain sight in the living room. And elsewhere in the house were was cash and jewelry and just other things that argued against robbery as being, being the motive. Uh, yeah,
0: exactly. That's what I was going to say. Like, clearly robbery was not why they were there.
1: And Elaine had also not been raped or sexually assaulted. So that wasn't a motive either. Yeah. Police found no evidence of any extramarital affairs involving keith or elaine that might have motivated someone into a jealous rage and a stack of papers with sports scores was found in the house and that did lead police to wonder whether keith might have incurred gambling debts and been involved in that oh yeah his mom joanne told police that her son was so frugal That he would raise money for Peter's college fund by reselling 50-cent cans of soda at work for a small profit. Like, he was not the kind of person to gamble. He was
0: not doing any gambling. If he is like, I'm going to take this can of Coke that I bought for 50 cents and sell it for a dollar. Like, no.
1: Yeah, no. and also Because, like,
0: if he needed money for gambling, that is not how he would go about it.
1: But also the image of a dad... Being like, hey, who wants to buy sodas to so the guys at the plant? Raising money for my kids' college? I don't know. That just fucking breaks my heart.
0: This whole case is breaking my heart. But that... Yeah. Oh, my God. It he just, was just, like, it's this little wholesome... details
1: like that that are so real. I know.
0: He was just, like, this super wholesome family guy who wanted the best for his family and was trying yeah. to protect them and even told his mom that he wanted to move. Because of everything that was happening. And then it fucking happened to his family.
1: Local police agencies joined forces with the Illinois State Police to investigate the crime. But in spite of a massive investigation involving 30 detectives dedicating full-time work to the case and interviewing more than 100 people. But the police were not able to determine a motive for the killings, let alone find anything any likely suspect. Yeah. As time passed and the case grew colder and colder, Joanne, Keith's mother, continued to pressure authorities to try and solve the murders of her son and his family.
0: This is like we were she, saying in my case, how, yes, important, how important the family families. is. Yes.
1: Yes. Wow.
0: Well, literally we would just echoed one another, but yes.
1: She gathered more than 3000 signatures in an attempt to get the Oprah Winfrey show to do a segment on the murders. But it was deemed too graphic for daytime television. Oh,
0: God.
1: Similarly... I feel like Oprah would do it now. Maybe. But similarly, America's Most Wanted initially passed on the case, but they later did a segment in 1998, but it produced no new leads. Damn it. It wasn't until the year 2000 that some new light was shed on this murder of the Dardine family. So that year, a serial killer named Tommy Lynn Sells, who had been arrested for cutting the throats of two girls near Del Rio, Texas, oh, God began confessing to other murders that he claimed to have committed over the years. And one of those killings that he claimed responsibility for was the murder of the Dardine family. So in the mid-1980s, Sells was living primarily in the St. Louis area, which is roughly about 90 miles northwest of Jefferson County. And he was making money working at traveling carnivals and fairs and through theft.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: And for his theft, he would often hitch rides with truckers or hop on freight trains without any destination in mind. And it was through these modes of transportation that he became familiar with the Ina area And on one trip through Jefferson County in November of 87, he claimed to have met Keith at a truck stop near Mount Vernon, or in a different retelling, he said he met him at a local pool hall. But in both versions of the story, he says that Keith invited him home for dinner, and after the meal, Sells was planning to move on, but Keith allegedly triggered his anger by sexually propositioning him. And in one account, to have a threesome with Elaine. Oh! So after this, he goes into the gay rage, gay panic fucking thing that's not real. No,
0: I think he's full of shit.
1: I absolutely agree. He says he forced Keith at gunpoint to drive to where his body was found, killed and mutilated him, and then returned to the trailer to kill Elaine and Peter, who were witnesses, To
0: the gay rage? Like, really?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And although he said it was at the time a result of this uncontrollable rage at Keith's alleged sexual offer that set him off, he said, I was just so pissed off that I took it to the maximum limit. Rage don't have a stop button. Oh, fuck this guy. And he implied that it explained why he had killed the infant that Elaine had delivered during the crime as well, because he was just... Because rage don't stop! Fuck you, dude. In a third version of the story, Cells dispensed with the encounter with Keith and the sexual proposition entirely. And on this account, he said he got off a freight train, he'd hopped near Ina, and when he saw the Dardene trailer and its for sale sign, he saw an opportunity for killing. Oh my
0: god, because and they after- wanted to move, so... They would, people would just think, oh, they moved.
1: That, or he's like, oh, this gives me a reason to just walk up to the place. So after having a couple beers and waiting for the right time, he says he knocked on the door and told Keith that he was interested in buying the trailer. He then overpowered Keith, made him bind and gag his own wife and son with duct tape, and forced him to drive his car to the nearby field at gunpoint, where he sliced off Keith's penis telling him he was going to take it back to Elaine, and then shot him and left him there. Then he said at the trailer, he raped Elaine and beat Peter, Elaine, and the newborn to death. And after cleaning up, he drove Keith's car to Benton. So, there are a few issues with his confession. Just removing the fact that he couldn't even keep his story straight. Right. During his confession, he did accurately describe certain details of the murder, some of which he could have gotten from media accounts. Well, And when quizzed about some of the details that were never made public about how Elaine's body was found, he initially replied inaccurately, but then later blurted out the correct response. And he also insisted that he shot Keith in a certain seat in his car, but the evidence disproved that.
0: It sounds like he is, for another...
1: Full of Yeah,
0: it's like he's shooting blanks. It's like he's just like, hey, I'm going to guess all these things, and he happened to get one right on the second try.
1: That was what investigators were saying, were that, like, you know, yes, he did technically say this thing that was true and not released to the public... But it was on his second try. He was wrong about a lot of things. That very much could have just been luck that he actually guessed the correct thing.
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: Police in Texas confirmed that Selves was responsible for 22 murders. Oh my
0: god! I thought it was just two.
1: It was a lot
0: more. Whoa.
1: It was the two murders in Del Rio were just what he was caught for.
0: 22 and murders. And they confirmed
1: him for 22. But they came to believe that in a conscious imitation of another Texas serial killer, someone who I've also covered, Henry Lee Lucas. Oh. That Cels was trying to avoid the death penalty by confessing to crimes that he hadn't committed and taking advantage of the judicial system.
0: Oh my gosh. No.
1: Okay, well, we have to keep him alive to try him for these and go through this process and stuff. And the police in Illinois wanted to take Sells to Ina so that they could see how well he actually knew the area and the locations that were relevant to the crime. And Sells also claimed that he could lead police to missing evidence. But Texas law does not allow prisoners on death row to be taken out of state. And the authorities were not willing to find a way to make an exception. No. Because they did not believe him.
0: And therefore had no reason.
1: So doubts about his confession were not just limited to local law enforcement. Friends and family also have a lot of issues with some of his claims. For one, they doubt that Keith would have invited home someone from out of town with whom he just met to have dinner with the family. Because he's saying like, oh, we, we either met at you know, the pool hall or whatever, and he invited me home for dinner. Especially given the fear that had already gripped the town with the previous murder. Yes. A friend of the family said if he wouldn't let a young girl in to use the phone, he would not let a 22-year-old man No! In. Like, that just... No, he would not. Does not make sense. On April 3rd of 2014, Tommy Lynn Sells was executed in Huntsville, Texas. And though Sells confessed to more than 70 murders, at the time of his execution, authorities were only convinced of his guilt in 22 of them. The brutal slaying of the Dardeen family was not one of them. Yeah. And to this day, this murder case officially remains unsolved.
0: Oh, wow. Oh yeah. my god.
1: I'm, I'm telling you, when I saw that because because I how did you this. find this? There, there's a list on Wikipedia of unsolved murders, oh. and it's tragic how long this list of is. Of course. Because I started in the 70s, and I made it to the 80s, and that that was like 30 minutes of looking, yeah. Of thing. And there's so many. Well, and that's how I found this case, and I was like, yeah,
0: yeah. That's this is so heartbreaking, and. Think about their extended family and when this guy confesses how they think, oh my god, oh my god, we finally know, like, we're so close to the end. Or or not the end, but so close to a conclusion and some closure. And it's like, no, this guy is just fucking saying he did all this stuff. And he's just, because, like, he's proud. Like, he wants people to think he killed more than the 22 he was convicted of. Like, wh- why?
1: Well, Joanne, Keith's mother... So when Sells initially confessed, she believed him. She was like, this is the man that murdered my son and my family. Yeah. This is the man who did it. But the more time that went on and the more she looked at it, she was like... It's not him. I don't think he it's did not it. Him. And she said... I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but she said something along, along the lines of he deserves what's coming to him. You know, he deserves this execution, but I wish he would be alive long enough so I could find out the truth. Like
0: if he did it or not.
1: Yeah, because in the end, she didn't believe that he did it and believes that whoever did this to her son and her family is still out there. Yeah. Well, um, let's continue this conversation in postmortem. Yes. And just officially jump yes. in. I think one of the horrifying things about both our cases is just the lack of motive. Well, I'm mean, so
0: sorry. I don't mean to interrupt, but one thing, and I didn't mention this in my case.
1: You do mean to interrupt? I do.
0: I do mean to interrupt. One of the things that these that Campbell's students found for the killer of the you know the redhead murderer, his motive was mission. And so, like, he was driven by a mission or the thrill or power, control over these women. And they have, like, this really, really long defense as to why, like, that was the motive. Mm -hmm. And, again, like, obviously this person has never been caught, but they at least tried to frame a motive around him. But I get what you're saying, how... As far as like, like a true not, defined, or I guess motive. a
1: clear. No, no, yeah, no, no, it's not there. Not, it's like you just because robbery or sexual assault or anything like that it's just murder, and I yeah, I think, and not that anything would be easier, but I feel like knowing why a why, even if it's not a good enough answer, but having something as to why this happened, yes. gambling debts. Or a robbery gone wrong or something would give you something to grasp on. Yes. But we don't have that here.
0: No. We have absolutely nothing. Like, we don't know why these unspoken killers did what they did. We don't know if they did it to even more people than the ones that we've talked about. Yeah. Like, we we don't know. And
1: I th- I think that's such a big part of when you have a murder yeah. case that does have an identified killer, someone who did it, you can get the motive from yeah. them. And even if their motive is I like to kill or something, you have something concrete that you can grasp onto why. And I'm sure most of the time it's never enough. It's, you know, okay, but why them? Why my family? Why these people? Right. And there's never a good answer because it's, Fucked up. It's murder. It but I I don't know. The both our case were fucking heartbreaking.
0: They were, which I mean, unfortunately, very much comes with this topic. Yeah. So Yeah.
1: I think that my case, especially while your case had very cool things like the fucking class. Getting together and producing this report that's not only like, oh, it's a good report. It's like, a, oh, shit, the police are using this. Like, these students moved this case along. This group of 30, 16-year-olds were instrumental in pushing this case forward. That's incredible. I think if we're looking at the intensity of the case, Elaine being beaten to death so badly that she went into premature labor and her child being beaten to death in front of her. I think mine was the more intense one.
0: Mine definitely had a larger volume of victims.
1: Yeah, it, and did. it definitely did.
0: The brutality of the crimes towards all of them is not completely known because not only is the killer unknown, but also, half the victims are still unknown. And yeah. and that the evidence that was surrounding them because of their bodies being so decomposed, you can't determine exactly what happened. So there's a lot more mystery true. involved in mine. And so, That's like true. I will say, yours is absolutely horrific, but mine leaves like a lot of questions as to even what happened.
1: But I think while yours has a lot of questions as to what happened... Some of the details in mind that you know that that is what happened are so gruesome and horrifying. Well. I think this is one of the worst, I don't use worst, cases that I've ever done. Oh,
0: I totally agree. And I will say, I will definitely give this one to you because of the intensity. I I really just wanted to make a point that we don't really know everything that the victims of my case went through.
1: No, I th- I think in any other episode, yours would easily be the most intense case.
0: And honestly, to be fair, with what this fucking topic was, everything's intense about this because it's unsolved. Like, yeah. that alone well, I mean, is such a level of intensity.
1: We've only done one episode that I would classify as not intense, and it's when we did our true crime non-murder episode. I don't know, 20, 30 episodes ago, as a reprieve. Because even our Survivor episodes we've done in They're the past intense. are, in a lot of cases, more intense, yeah. I think, than some of our murder cases. We don't half-ass it here at Blood and Wine.
0: No half-assing. That's fucking sure. No. We like full-ass times two.
1: I really liked that you chose unsolved murders because while I don't know if anyone listening to this podcast is going to solve or be able to generate leads, specifically in your case, the fact that a high school project turned into so much momentum for the case shows how much, you know, just interest and diving into true crime can really make a difference. And
0: getting the word out there. About cases that are unsolved because honestly, no matter what cases you and I would have chosen, you never know who could be listening and who could hear the right thing and be like, oh shit, no, wait, my grandmother told me about this and Mm -hmm. she mentioned this one thing. And it just, it's important. And I think honestly what you're getting at is a big reason we even do this is it's awareness, it's awareness it is. of not only for your own safety, but maybe you know something.
1: Absolutely. And also with unsolved cases in particular, every unsolved case, there are still people looking for answers, looking for justice. And in a lot of solved cases, people are still looking for answers, but it's so much more in cases that are still open, still pending, that at any day now someone could be found who's guilty of these crimes it's just i feel like it, there are just so many more questions than answers especially in an unsolved case totally and there are so many more people just waiting for something
0: well and the phrase that i i love to think of is someone knows something Like, there is a reason Mm -hmm. there is literally a podcast dedicated to that phrase, someone knows something. Also, side note, really great podcast. But there is no way something can happen in this world and someone else doesn't know about it.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I truly, truly believe there is probably not a murder out there that only the killer knows what happened.
0: Yeah. I don't think that way either. Because
1: motherfuckers talk.
0: People talk. I
1: know. I I will literally be like, hi, person i never met. It's nice to meet you. Here's my deepest, darkest secrets. Maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm fucked up like that. No. But no. People talk. People
0: talk. And, like, there's also things like if someone's under the influence, whether it's drugs or alcohol, you can say things. And a lot of the times, mm-hmm. you say the things you don't ever want to say to anyone, but you do it because you're inebriated or there was someone that happened to be like in a dark corner witnessing something like completely Mm. unnoticeable by the killer and the victim, but that saw this occurrence and was Mm -hmm. too afraid to ever say anything. Like that is human reality because who wants to be that person that sees something and they're, they're not, 100% sure about it and then goes to the authorities like that is a nerve-wracking thing and while I will say I highly encourage anyone who thinks they've ever seen something like that like just report it because literally the worst that can happen is they're like no but they won't because these people are serious
1: see something say something it's a
0: phrase for a reason Yeah, that is like literally at this point almost our sub tagline
1: I know. I feel like we should, I feel like that should be a shirt. Hashtag see something, say something. Yes, and I'm sure it
0: already exists, and you should buy it and wear it, and we should all live with that.
1: Thinking someone else is going to say something, and that being your reason not, is the worst. It is. Even when it comes to like 911 calls, like, oh, we saw an accident, but we're in traffic, so someone else is going to call. Call. Worst that's happened is 911 people are going to be like, oh, thank you, we're aware, we're on our way. And you're like, great, I have peace of mind now, knowing 911's on the way. Knowing the police on the way. 911 is a number, (laughs) not a thing. Yeah. But anyways.
0: Yes, so um, I will pick the topic again next week. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's absolutely the best way for us to get noticed and for you to share this information and our podcast with your friends. So please rate and review.
1: Also make sure to like, and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also check out our website, blood and We have a merch store. If you love our logo and you want it all over your body, buy some t-shirts, hats, I mean, we have dog bandanas, but you can wear that on your arm or something. Totally do it. I don't know what people wear bandanas for, but you can do it. So check all of that out.
0: All right. And with that, thank you for listening.
1: This is Blood and Wine signing off.
0: XOXO. Bye, you guys.
1: Bye.